Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. Before I begin this episode, I wanted to apologize for the lengthy delay that there's been between this episode and the last. I've been obsessed for the last few months in finishing my latest book called Early 20th Century Algonquin Cottage Cookery that should be available on Amazon in about a month. It's part culinary history, part family story, and part cookbook, and is a whimsical stroll through the recipe box of Canoe Lake's Jean Bertram Peary from 1890 to 1940. It includes over 300 recipes, ready to be created in your home or cottage kitchen, and hopefully a fun addition to your upcoming summer adventures. I wanted to remind everyone that all of my books, as well as those by my friend and fellow Algonquin Park human historian, Roderick Mackay, are all available through the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores and at Amazon. On my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, on the Picks and Vids page, I've posted selections from my library of historical photographs of people and places that I talk about in these podcasts, which I hope you will find of interest. As I mentioned before, I also strongly encourage everyone to lend their financial support to the Wildlife Research Station, whose information can be found on their website, www.algonquinwrs.ca, and consider buying an Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirt, coffee cup, or other merch by clicking on the Gifts and Gears buttons on my website. If you have any ideas of topics that you think would be fun to explore or just want to share your sentiments about my podcasting efforts, please feel free to email me at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. As you may recall from episode 31, one of three on the history of the Wildlife Research Station, amphibian research has occurred periodically in Algonquin Park since the mid-1980s. In 2008, a continuous study of the salamander population was initiated and led by Glenn Tattersall from the Brock University that is still very active. Now salamanders are interesting because one rarely sees them. They prefer to live under rotting leaves and logs in the summer and then in winter they burrow underground. But it turns out that in certain locations in Algonquin Park there are huge numbers of them some in the order of 30,000 per hectare, which in my brain amounts to about 12,000 per acre. In the last episode, I had the opportunity to introduce you to Patrick Muldowan from the University of Toronto School of the Environment and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, who has just successfully defended his PhD thesis on ecology and sensitivity to environmental change of a northern population of spotted salamanders. Now, for those unaware, Patrick is a devoted, lifelong interpretive naturalist with a special interest in salamanders and turtles. In 2015, he was named Canada's 26th New Noah by Wildlife Preservation Canada and received a scholarship to spend six months with the Dural Trust on Mauritius Island to apprentice in practical recovery strategies for the island's endangered endemic wildlife. He's also led eco-tours to the Yukon and Alaska and the Galapagos Islands through Worldwide Quest, a company that's been offering 
travel tours to unique locations since 1970. Patrick is also the board chair for the Algonquin Wildlife Research Station. Today, Patrick and I are going to explore more deeply his work on salamanders and climate change. Patrick, welcome to Algonquin Defining Moments. It's so exciting to have you back again to talk about not just salamanders, but salamanders and the impact of climate change on their ecosystem. Which uh, I believe is one of your favorite topics, right? You bet. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> thanks for having me. And yeah, although salamanders are mostly out of sight and therefore out of mind, uh, I think that there's a lot of really interesting stories that they can tell. So I'm happy to be here. Great. So if we could dig a little deeper on this climate change thing, one of the things that I'm uh, that you mentioned previously was that these animals spend most of their time from late fall till April, <laughs> more or less, uh, underground. So my sort of first thought is, well, okay, if they live all their most of their time underground, they're not going to be affected by climate change at all. But my recollection is that may not be true. And you did some research in that area, didn't you? That's right. So in fact, that was our hunch too, <laughs> that that salamanders would be properly insulated or even buffered from climatic change because they spend a large majority of, of their life underground. But our data set is getting long enough now that we can begin to test and look at some of these relationships between salamander biology and climate. So yeah, climate can, can affect salamanders in, in a lot of different ways. The, the first and perhaps most obvious way, it has to do with the timing of major life cycle events, especially breeding. So mm. these salamanders are so closely tied to the environment in terms of their activity patterns that any major changes we see, such as the timing of ice off and spring thaw, is likely to be reflected in their biology. And in fact, we do see that the salamanders track thaw conditions really, really close. And over the course of the past century, uh, or thereabouts, Algonquin Park has seen an advancing shift in spring thaw. Uh, these days, well, present day, thaw is occurring approximately two weeks earlier than it did a century ago. And that is because we're seeing warming spring conditions compared to a century previous. And so as conditions continue to warm in the springtime, we expect these animals will will track that and their breeding season will get earlier. And that's, that isn't inherently or necessarily a, a bad thing for them. In fact, if anything, it could potentially give them a much longer season to feed and be active. But there is, there is a secondary risk with that. And that is, of course, if it's warmer or a little bit drier, especially into the summer, then those temporary ponds in which they rely could dry up prematurely. And if that happens, then that means that the eggs and the larvae never survive to exit the ponds and, and they dry out and die when, when the ponds dry. So that is not something that we have any evidence for at the time, but it's certainly something that we're monitoring for into the future. But really interestingly, one major finding that we've had uh, recently is that the salamanders appear to be losing weight uh, because conditions are warming. now. 
Now, most listeners might think, wow, a weight loss regime with climate change, how can that be so bad? I wish <laughs> I wish that might apply to me. But in the case of the salamanders, uh, the salamanders are, are losing weight. Uh, they appear to be slimming. Uh, that is, their body condition is declining through time. And this is concurrent with warming climatic conditions. Algonquin is seeing most of its warming happening in the late summer and into the fall. And this is a really important time for the salamanders because it's often the driest time of year. Um, but it's also time when the salamanders need to be above ground and foraging. And so if dry and hot conditions are coinciding with the time when these animals need to be most active and feeding, it means that they could be prevented, of course, from being active and feeding. And so on one hand, the feeding opportunities for these animals might be stifled by exposure to warmer temperatures. And as well, because these animals are, are ectothermic or, or so-called cold-blooded, that is their body temperature is the same as their environment, it means that their metabolic rate scales with temperature. So warmer temperatures mean that their metabolic rate is faster and they burn energy faster. So not only under warmer temperatures are the animals maybe unable to feed quite as much as they'd like, but they're also losing a lot of their fat reserves. So this is kind of a scenario like with money, of course, it's not necessarily how much you make, but it's also how much you keep in the end. And in the case of these animals, not only are they maybe not able to make enough, so it seems, but they're maybe not able to keep enough either because they're burning their available fat reserves under warmer temperature regimes, especially in the late summer and the autumn period, which is so important for their activity. And I would think that that would impact ultimately how many eggs they could produce or the size of the biomass that they could produce in the springtime as well, right? Especially if if as you say, well, not if, they don't eat all, they're like the bears, right? They don't eat all winter. It's not like they can go off and stuff themselves and then go lay eggs. That's not how it works, right? That's precisely it. Yeah, the salamanders cannot simply go over to the Two Rivers store and enjoy yeah. what you eat. <laughs> they, you're right. What we expect into the future, that if this pattern continues to hold, we would expect that there will be knock-on effects to their biology. So we would predict, just as you said, that there would be lower reproductive turnout. They might not come to the ponds as often to breed. When they do breed, they may not lay as many eggs, or those eggs might not uh, be allocated with quite as much yolk in order to support development. And so, yeah, we, we begin to expect that these sort of population level trends that we're seeing in, in declines in body condition and, and fat reserves will begin to, say, manifest at the individual level where individuals might have declines to reproduction or survival and other aspects of their biology. So what's the future look like for salamanders 50 years ahead? What were some of the hypotheses that you had going into that? And were, were those right? Or did you end up finding a completely different set of things? <laughs> yeah, so so when we're... When we're targeting these questions related to the, the interactions of, of climate and, and amphibian biology, we had several hypotheses. Perhaps, perhaps foremost, you know, we, we predict that the warming conditions, which are, are predicted for the future climate of Algonquin, as with a lot of regions of the world, 
uh, is likely to have detrimental consequences for these fairly cold adapted animals. And so we had predicted that presently in our longitudinal data set, but certainly well into the future on, on time horizons that span the years to 2050 through 2100, a, a warming climate and a slight increases to precipitation, which are predicted for Algonquin, are expected to have an effect on the, the body condition and the overall biology of the spotted salamander. And what we have been able to predict from the past 15 years, you know, projecting that forward using uh, robust statistical methods, is that, yeah, under a warming scenario of about an additional one to three degrees Celsius, which is certainly within a business as usual scenario, salamander body condition is likely to continue to decline from anywhere from about 10 and to 30%. So their overall body mass is likely to decrease by 10%, so up to about a third, which is, is a non-trivial amount of, of decline. And indeed, if that happens, we would expect that these animals are, are going to experience pretty serious challenges. And that could include things like survival, reproduction, and, and ultimately decline to their overall abundance. Wow. That's... And I would assume that that a by itself is awful, but but also the impacts on the rest of the ecosystem. That's right. Given what we know about how how important salamanders are as linkages in food webs and understory and ground level ecosystems in our forests, that uh, yeah, the loss of salamanders could really reverberate outwards, or, or at least their decline. You know, I certainly, certainly, I think it's a, a pretty big overstatement to say that we're going to have widespread um, losses of salamanders, certainly not anywhere like, like Algonquin. Uh, and, and certainly not due to climate change anywhere in the near future. But the, the small sort of impacts that begin to accumulate could be fairly substantial into, into the long term. Um, there's been lots of work in the tropics to show that as amphibian communities have declined, they've caused a lot of knock-on effects. So amphibian disease, for example, um, mostly which has been spread by, by humans around the world and introduced to uh, naive and amphibians and ecosystems has been really problematic and has caused wide, widespread declines and, and even extinctions in, in many species. For instance, there's an amphibian disease uh, in Europe right now, which has not yet arrived in, in North America. And it's probably not a matter of if, unfortunately, but when it arrives. Uh, and it's been shown that where this disease has arrived, salamander populations have completely collapsed. Uh, and that can absolutely have major knock-on effects in the ecosystem from nutrient cycling to predator-prey dynamics. Um, it can be highly interruptive. Mm. So two other things came up for me. One, which was, does the temperature of the ground have any impact? You know, the great thing about a lot of the science we do is you start with one question and it suddenly spirals out and to many different questions that can support many different students and a lot of curious minds running around in the field uh, makes for a really interesting and productive learning. So we have uh, quite recently started launching some temperature data loggers underground. These are really small devices, you know, maybe not much bigger than a, a one or two dollar coin and they go underground and they have a little 
optical battery and they record temperatures at different time intervals. And that allows us to track temperatures through the seasons, through time, and look at changes. Now, we've only done that in more recent years, uh, so we don't have too long a data set, but uh, almost unexpectedly, what it has given us insight into is how deep these animals have to overwinter. So we know, for instance, that unlike a lot of frogs, these salamanders uh, are not freeze tolerant, so they have to get deep below the frost line. And it turns out the frost line in Algonquin can be can be quite deep. Uh, of course, in the in the late fall, when things really begin to freeze up and cold temperatures begin to to penetrate into the Ground. These animals are probably at least a foot, maybe even several feet underground, trying to stay away uh, from the, the frost creep. And almost un somewhat unexpectedly is once it begins to snow a lot and a big deep snowpack begins to build right on the surface, it becomes warmer underground because that snowpack begins to act as an insulating layer. And so it keeps right around ground level freezing, but no longer is, you know, ground level minus 15 minus 20 or minus 30 degrees Celsius. So that's that's really interesting that although we can't know what the salamanders are doing underground in the winter, we can track the temperature profiles underground and that can give us an idea of where they're likely to be in order to, to reach a, an important trade-off. They don't want to be so cold, of course, that they risk freezing and, and dying, but they also don't want to be too warm underground, for which there's probably not too much of a risk of that, that over winter, but they don't want to be too warm underground because then that means they'll burn their energy reserves faster. Mm. Of course, they're fasting and not feeding. So when you set out to answer one question, like say climate change and get temperature profiles in the underground environment, it turns out you, you of course, start to stumble upon other things and think about other aspects of their biology that you can address or answer or, or inquire about. Which I guess is what makes it interesting, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Never, never a dull moment. I, I, I like to say about the, about the wildlife research station and Algonquin Park more generally is that uh, nothing changes and everything changes. It's, it's a bit paradoxical because you can go out there and do the same thing for weeks on end, catching these animals and photographing them and weighing and measuring them and, and going about collecting these data about their populations. And then you can leave for one day and come back and somebody you were working with says, oh, you'll never believe this crazy thing that happened while you were gone. So it's it's funny, you can't leave the place for a second without yeah. uh, yeah. An interesting wildlife observation or, or something otherwise yeah. that, that draws you right back in. So since the early 50s, the leaseholders of Canoe Lake have been holding a competition to guess when the ice is gonna leave the lake. and my recollection is that it hasn't shifted all of that much over the, the, the decades since then. So I was wondering whether or not your research has shown any impact that either longer ice, or maybe I guess it's shorter length of time that ice is on the lake has any impact on the salamander ecosystem. Yeah, so so that I just recently learned of this uh, ISOF data set from Canoe Lake, which is is really fascinating. That's a wonderful example of you know community science. In this case, the leaseholder community who's who's been collecting valuable data all along, and that can be paired with the data from Lake of Two Rivers, which has been collected by Ron Tozer. Uh, at the visitor center for uh, for a half century, and going back to 
the 1960s, the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research on Lake Gobiongo. So getting several data sets like this can really help tease apart a lot of these trends and patterns. Now, the Lake Opiongo data set is the longest uh, running record we have to date, followed by uh, Lake of Two Rivers. And those show a really compelling advancing trend in ISOF. So not only are we tending to see later freeze-ups happen in the autumn, but we're seeing slightly earlier ice-offs in the spring. And that certainly might not be true of, of every single lake in the park, especially because of different flow regimes, inflows from rivers can dramatically change it, how much of a basin flows in from, from the surrounding landscape of meltwater. But by and large, we are seeing these, these advancing trends. And there's an excellent paper published uh, by an author named Favot and colleagues in 2019, looking at longitudinal data sets of wind speed and seasonal temperatures and ice off conditions in Algonquin Park. Uh, and and they, they show this really, really convincingly. But to the casual observer, it, it is really challenging to parse out a trend because you're right, there's a lot of annual variation. For instance, with some of our salamander work over the past 15 years, the earliest breeding dates are uh, April, uh, April 7th and 8th, and our latest breeding dates are May 9th and 10th. So that's a oh, whole wow. month of variation <laughs> between the start of amphibian breeding, and that's you know that's tied to ice thaw. So perhaps you've seen those those. Um, Graph, graphical representations of ISOF data from Lake Opiongo especially, but it, it could be done with the, the Canoe Lake data as well, shows it shows through time the ups and downs and ups and downs of thaw. And, and so it's difficult, once again, to parse out those highs and those lows. But the overall pattern is that those are shifting earlier through time. But there's a lot of noise to that data. It's not all of a sudden, you know, all of them are consistent downtrending there's ups and downs and downs and downs and downs and ups and ups and ups and downs and downs and downs and downs <laughs> so it's it requires yeah a little bit more of a rigorous rigorous statistical evaluation but overall the trending is towards uh, earlier ice off conditions and um, and at least for the two rivers data set which is is great and includes ice in it's suggesting that the lakes are freezing up slightly later as well because the warmer fall temperatures. Hmm. I think it's time for another musical interlude, and this track is called Spring Awakening and comes from Dan Gibson's Solitude's album of the same name. Thank you. 
don't remember now what it was I was reading was that that in fact there is more rain overall I was up there last the end of August I was expecting certainly not winter wear but certainly heavy coat and sweaters and and here I was in my sundress at the last week of August and I'm going what this is Elgog how can this be Elgog this warm <laughs> but I was expecting fire every night and I noticed the fact that it was war is warmer later in the season, but I've also noticed that it's wetter than it's been. Has does that have any impact on on a salamanders in general, but in 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 sort of their the future of them? Is that affected? Does that affect them at all? Yeah. So predictions from uh, staff at the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research. Uh, they have made long-term climatic predictions into the future and under a business-as-usual scenario with our, our continued burning of, of fossil fuels, temperature rises of one to three degrees Celsius are, are expected over the next uh, half to three quarters of a century and uh, about 20% increases in precipitation over baselines from the early 1900s. And so we are expecting warmer, but slightly wetter conditions. Now, proportional to what we know about uh, climate in the recent past in Algonquin Park, the temperature rise of about one to three degrees above the annual average is, is really quite, quite substantial. And so that, that stands to reason then that it's going to have some pretty sizable uh, effects on wildlife. However, a 20% increase in precipitation is, is really doesn't amount to, to all that much. And based on our modeling of climate and body condition in salamanders, uh, a one to three degree increase in, in temperature will have those really substantial in, impacts to salamander body condition, resulting in body condition losses of around 10 to 30%. But the, uh, the increases in precipitation of about 20% are not enough to offset the losses caused by temperature increases. So in other words, although uh, wetter conditions are excellent for uh, amphibians and would generally promote a lot more feeding and activity and enhance reproductive success, increasing precipitation is not commensurate with the negative impacts of temperature. And so it's, it's hard to say as well exactly at what time of year uh, that additional precipitation will be falling. Um, you know, predicting climate from week to week can be really challenging, never mind across uh, timescales of decades and, and centuries, although there is, there is really robust uh, mathematical methods to, to do so. They have, their, they have their limitations, of course. 
And so, yeah, we are expecting a slightly wetter and appreciably warmer climate for the Algonquin Highlands into the future. And I, I expect for vegetation, that will especially have some pretty major influences for cold water fish. There are a lot of concerns, you know, especially brook trout and, and lake trout, these fish that require really cold water breeding habitats, warming threatens to uh, to, to impinge on some of those cold water. We're already seeing really compelling evidence with the Canada Jays and their declines that warming temperatures and increasing rates of freeze-thaw uh, are spoiling their food caches and leading to decreased reproductive success. And I think into the future, we can see something similar with salamanders, although it will probably be much more gradual to develop if it ever does. And it will be probably a little bit harder to detect just because we we don't uh, have quite as long a data set yet. Uh, but maybe by that time arrives, uh, we we will be able to parse these natural patterns and the, and the variation that arises from them. But this suggests, though, back to your sort of canary in the coal mine analogy, that this kind of research is not a you know, one and done sort of thing, that it is something that needs to be ongoing. And is there a, is there a broad collection of sort of folks after you <laughs> that are interested and are continue, are going to be continuing the research? Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to say that there, there is. Salamander research and amphibian research more broadly that takes place at the Algonquin Wildlife Research Station is really just one project in a collective of many that focuses on long-term ecological studies. And there's huge value to these long-term studies, in part because they tend to happen on time scales and spatial scales that are really relevant for management. So, right, rather than a one-and-done study where, where somebody can come in and study something for one or two years and leave, this really provides us the time horizons to document change because we know a lot of change in the environment is gradual. It happens over decades. It happens over people's lifetimes. You know, in the case of the long-term turtle research at the research station this year, you know, we, we still have turtles that are in the study from 1972. You know, we haven't even done one full life cycle of these turtles, and yet we've been studying them for 51 years. So yeah. how can you expect to come in in one or two years and, and truly understand the animals or the system without putting in the time? And so Algonquin Park is home to these amazing long-term data sets that are simply unparalleled. You know, 70, over 75 years of small mammal research at the research station, the longest, one of the longest ecological studies in the world. Half a century of turtle work has been instrumental in informing the biology and conservation of, of turtles globally. The Canada Jay work, which is headed by D Dan Strickland and, and Ryan Norris, that takes place in Algonquin Park, has likewise been one of the very few studies to actually directly tie climate change to population declines of, of wild animals. All of this in, you know, in one park, one really epic park at that, uh, that is, that is Algonquin. And so there's huge value in these long-term data sets because the timescales over which they occur, the opportunity for really targeted research, but also open-ended discovery that, that often results uh, not by design, but by sheer coincidence and, and having young people who are excited to be out in the field, going out there and quite literally getting their, their feet wet and, and hands dirty. Long-term data sets are just simply unparalleled for documenting phenomena in the natural world, and they give you the time and space to do that. 
So, so one other topic that I'm curious about, because I have this vision of you hanging out in the mud, <laughs> you know, on your tummy, looking at things, and suddenly you discover a pitcher plant and discover, uh-oh, there's a, can't be, a baby salamander in a pitcher plant. So you need to tell me about that. And because that is, as you say, one of those unexpected, you know, we're thinking about something completely different and suddenly there's a whole new world that we didn't know about. So can you tell us a little bit about that discovery and, and you know, where what the implications are for that? <laughs> yeah, that's that's certainly been one of the, the more recent and more exciting discoveries <laughs> from our long-term amphibian work at the, at the research station <laughs> and unexpected for that matter as well. Yeah, as mentioned, a lot of a lot of research studies sort of by necessity start out with a really targeted question, a hypothesis, and so on. And that's because you know time time is is limited for specific projects and budgeted is budget is limited too. So you have to be really strategic and targeted. But the great thing I love is when science goes outside those boundaries and, and you start to it starts to take on a, a natural life of its own. And that truly is the story behind our discovery with salamanders falling prey to carnivorous plants. And I think one of the main players behind the story who doesn't get mentioned nearly enough is a, is a student uh, formerly of the University of Guelph named Teske Baldwin. And Teske uh, was an undergraduate student from Guelph who came to the Wildlife Research Station and was looking uh, for a field course in, in the late summer. He was looking for a research project and over the picnic tables at dinner at the research station, he and I spoke about possible research ideas and I pointed them in the direction of, of several different uh, lakes and wetlands in Algonquin that had really robust populations of pitcher plants. And so he and, and some of his friends uh, went out there to survey the plants and they came back with something that looked like an amphibian carcass. It was really decomposed and we weren't quite sure what it was. And that's really what prompted the whole thing. So so uh, kudos to Teske Baldwin for, for his discovery. And it was soon after that I joined him in the field and we went and started doing some targeted searching. So, so pitcher plants are, are endlessly fascinating. They're carnivorous plants, uh, sort of akin in some ways to the Venus flytrap. Uh, maybe that's some, a lot of people are, are familiar with. And these carnivorous plants grow in really nutrient-poor ecosystems. They do really well in northern bog and swamp environments, usually these areas where there isn't a lot of flowing water. It's sort of stagnant, and, and these plants can get a root into mosses. The pitcher plant is, is like a lot all carnivorous plants, uh, really special because it can acquire nutrients through non-traditional pathways for a plant rather than sucking nutrients up through the roots that provide the foundations for growth. These plants have an alternative nutrient pathway and that is because they can catch prey, digest it and liberate those nutrients for their own growth. Pitcher plants are neat because they grow out of the mosses in these swampy, boggy wetland habitats. And it looks like they're, they're quite literally like an open pit stomach. They have, uh, they have this unique leaf that's shaped a little bit like a, a small glass or a mug. And it catches rainwater and fills up. And it's into that leaf that uh, prey items are attracted. 
So the plants secrete a really sweet nectar compound from the edges of the leaf, and that encourages organisms traditionally like, like ants and beetles and moths to come feed. And if those insects take a wrong step, they uh, will fall into the gaping maw of the pitcher plant, uh, likely not to escape because of the fluid that they fall into and, and get trapped in and because of the really smooth, waxy sides to the inside of the leaf that prevent escape. And even if these insects try to climb out, uh, they often encounter these downward pointing hair-like structures that grow on the inside of the leaf that prevent, uh, prevent escape. So yeah, pitcher plants have been incredibly well studied by naturalists and scientists for over the past century, mainly because they're so darn fascinating. And so you, you'd think that we knew just about everything, everything about them, but lo and behold, yeah, in the wet lens of Algonquin Park, we, we came upon this really serendipitous case of salamanders falling prey to the plants. And, and it was because Teskey went out and, and started looking in the plants and we found our share of insects that were getting trapped uh, inside these plants. But the more we looked, the more we found. These salamanders are apparently climbing in for reasons entirely unbeknownst to us. And they are landing and getting trapped inside the leaves of these carnivorous plants. And they're eventually succumbing and their nutrients are then being used by the plants. So we think, and that's an ongoing investigation, to, to of course, fuel the plant's growth and its own seeding and reproduction. But, but we're not, we're just, we're not talking a few though, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, that's I mean, right. What? In, in that in 2019, you had 92 plants that found 127 salamanders, no, 127 salamanders in 50, that's in 57 plants. That's a lot of salamanders. And that's that a, is, these are, <laughs> these are hungry plants. So it seems. So I, I think the you know, really the biggest outstanding question is, is exactly that. Why, why is this happening with such high abundance? Why haven't others recorded this before? And, and yeah, what is, what is so, what is so unique about this scenario? So, so to be fully transparent, others have found salamanders trapped in pitcher plants before, but they've all been really one-off instances. There's been cases from say Michigan and Massachusetts and other areas of the Northeastern and, and Midwestern U.S. where salamanders and pitcher plants overlap. But to have the sheer abundance, as, as you just said, is really outstanding. And so that that is under really active investigation. We're so curious about this. If it just happens that, you know, there are really great sites that overlap where pitcher plants and salamanders are equally abundant and it, it facilitates these interactions. Uh, you know, we're asking questions right now, like, um, and, and this is being spearheaded by Amanda Semenuk, uh, a master's student at the University of Guelph. She's investigating, you know, if there's any kind of pattern where we can predict what plants are really good at catching salamanders. You know, this is this is really curious because it it turns the tables on most predator prey interactions that we know. Of course, most predators are highly mobile. They're moving around and they're catching prey. But in this case, the predator, which is the plant, is highly stationary and the prey is coming to it. So we want to know why why are the salamanders getting trapped at all and is there any way that we can figure out why they're getting trapped 
And so in this instance, you know, for example, we're asking questions like, are the, are the salamanders being attracted to the plants in the same way the insects are? You know, at face value, it wouldn't seem that way because salamanders don't feed on nectar. But maybe salamanders are being attracted to the plants because insects are being attracted to the plants. And we know that salamanders eat insects, so it's sort of a chain reaction, perhaps. Or another idea that we've come up with is, <laughs> is maybe the salamanders are quite literally just walking in to the plants and climbing. In other words, they're encountering these sort of natural pitfall traps on the landscape. Uh, and, and all the salamanders that are being captured are really young. So these are just metamorphic salamanders that are leaving the ponds. And they've just developed legs. They're moving on to land for the first time. They're sort of, you know, maybe land lovers. They, 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 they're just getting their feet under them. And it's, sure uh, enough, you know, Joey's just, you know, exploring where his mom tells him not to go. And bingo, he ends up in food for a picture plant. That's right. Like any rebellious youth. Yeah. <laughs> going off the beaten trail. And what do you encounter? Well, none other than a salamander eating plant. <laughs> But, I mean, we laugh, but if we put our Charles Darwin hats on and believe in evolution, you know, if I'm a pitcher plant, ants versus salamanders, <laughs> you know, I have to have a lot of ants that I have to have caught in order to be equivalent to the food source of a salamander. So, I mean, that eventually, <laughs> you know, will have an impact <laughs> to some degree, I would think. Absolutely. And in fact, we, we have crunched the numbers on this to try to figure it out. So it's it's overly not not too complex, but but here's a run of the numbers. So you may know, especially the gardeners among us, that there tend to be a couple nutrients that are really limiting for plants. One is nitrogen and one is phosphorus. And those those are really the, the building blocks alongside carbon of, of plant life. And those are often really limiting in habitats, especially the boggy, swampy habitats where pitcher plants grow. So we asked ourselves, well, how much nitrogen and phosphorus are there in, for example, salamanders or more conventional prey items for these plants like flies and ants? And, and this is what we found. We found that if a plant, uh, so for every salamander that is captured by a plant, it can grow approximately three new leaves, which is which is huge. It is like this, these plants are feeding at a buffet table and getting huge nutrient pulses from the capture of any given salamander. But in order to, to grow a single new leaf, a plant would have to capture the equivalent of about 500 small flies or over 125 ants. So that's that's remarkable. You know, one salamander will yield three new leaves to a plant, which of course then allows the plant to catch more food and catch more food. It's sort of a rich gets richer scenario. Uh, salamanders provide the plant enough nutrients to then grow bigger, possibly catch more salamanders and, and so on and so forth. But, uh, a, you know, it would take about 500 flies or 125 ants to even just grow a single new leaf for these plants. So these salamanders are incredible nutrient linkages for these plants and are probably really making the difference in terms of contributing a massive pulse of nutrients to them. Right. How interesting. How interesting. Well, it's been a pleasure, Patrick catching up with you. I remember you told me just a few months ago, you've, you've successfully finished your 
defending your PhD. And, and so tell us what's next. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, I've been involved with salamander work now in Algonquin for the past 15 years. Uh, the the park itself, the salamanders and, and the wildlife research station are incredibly near and dear to me. Although I may become physically distant, I certainly won't be emotionally distant. Uh, uh, from these <laughs> from these places, uh, but at least for the next couple of years, I am headed to the Galapagos Islands to oversee a giant tortoise research program with the Charles Darwin Foundation. So I'm very fortunate uh, to take a lot of the skills that I've learned from my years of studying amphibians and reptiles in Algonquin Park, and uh, I'll, I'll be applying them <laughs> in this case somewhere a little bit uh, or especially exotic, the Galapagos Islands. But I'm going to very much stay closely connected to the work in Algonquin, and I wouldn't be surprised if in a couple of years' time I circle back and find myself back at the station and back in the park one way or another. Well, that sounds very, very exciting. The Galapagos is where it's all started, right? <laughs> and, uh, That's right. Nature's um, laboratory. Yep. 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 It's... Uh... It's wonderful. Uh, well, thank you again so much for your willingness to spend time with us. And we look forward to hearing more of your adventures later. Superb. Thanks for having me, Gay. And, uh, and I, I look forward to listening to the podcasts ahead. <laughs>